Well, if you're still in Psalm 16, you can turn now all the way back to the book of Philippians. And uh, by God's grace, we're going to wrap up chapter 3. And depending on if we have some extra time, we might even jump into the first part of chapter 4 today. Um, I had had in my mind to be done by the end of the year. And uh, we may or may not get there. We probably, uh, worst case scenario, we would finish uh, sometime in um, uh, the early part of January. And... Um, you can be praying, and uh, I'd love to hear your suggestions for where we go next. Um, this is this is your class, and uh, my job is is to uh, open the Word of God so that we can all grow and we can all change and we can be built up in Him and and uh, get to know our Savior better. So if you have ideas, maybe a book you've always wanted to study or a topic, um, you, you know me, I've always got ideas rolling around in my head, but. Uh, I'd love for you to pray with me, and if you have suggestions, uh, I'd love to hear um, what you'd like to do. So, But before we get there, uh, let's look to the end of Philippians, and um, let me set up the context a little bit, and then we'll jump into the final two verses of this chapter. Um, you'll recall that last time, uh, he's actually been in this discussion where, you remember, there are some people in the church and uh, for the most part, these guys are doing great, right? I mean, they're, they're persevering under trial. They're seeing the gospel go out. And you remember in the early part of Philippians, uh, Paul said, one of the things I'm so excited about is that because of the Philippians' testimony and the gospel influence in that part of the world, that, that the, the message of Jesus was going into some... Whoa. <laughs> and I talk for a living. That's scary. Let's try that again. Um, was going into some strategic places like Caesar's household, like, like the very palace, the Praetorian Guard, which would have been the, the group of soldiers that surrounded uh, the Roman emperor. And so the gospel is going forth. People's lives are being changed. Even Paul, as a result of his imprisonment, remember he's writing this in prison, and he says, even as a result of me being here, there are believers that are being strengthened because of that. So things are going very well, but, but there was a group of people, and, and we, we first hear about it here, um, there were people that were trying to draw the Philippians back into Judaism, to this sort of hybrid of Christianity. And you guys remember this? Uh, the, the guys were called Judaizers, that's the technical term for them, but basically what they were saying is true religion is when you take the best of Judaism and the best of Christianity and you glue them together and you got a religion. And uh, Paul talks about that in the first part of chapter 3. We spent some time, some weeks looking at that. But now he's turned to address a second problem, and that is uh, some people that have said, you know what, we've come to Christ, and um, we're perfect. We're perfect. Uh, we, we don't need to grow. We don't need to mature. Uh, we don't need to spend time in worship or the scriptures or prayer because as we've come to Christ, we recognize that God has just brought us up to super Christian status and now we're just going to sail into glory without any effort on our part. And, and you'll recall back in chapter 3, verse uh, 12, Paul says in response to that, not that I've already obtained it or have I become perfect, but I press on. So Paul is saying that there's no status of Christian perfection that we're going to achieve in this life. Um, sanctification is progressive. You remember the graph? Right? And there's good days and bad days, but, but there's no flat line. There, there's no point at which a Christian says, I'm done. I don't need to grow anymore. I don't need to mature anymore. And, and just as a footnote, um, Look out for people like that. 
Look out for people. There may be some Wesleyans, you know, some old school Wesleyans running around that really believe in, in entire sanctification and Christian perfectionism. And that may be a theological problem. But, but as I, as I told you a couple of weeks ago, there's a real danger in taking a retirement from your spiritual growth. And it troubles me to see people that have walked with Jesus for years to get to a point where they say, you know what, I can put it in spiritual cruise control. I don't need to read my Bible so much. I don't need to pray so much. I've heard, you know, thousands of sermons in my life. I've read a whole bunch of, you know, what's the point? And I think that's a lot more of a temptation than falling into like a Wesleyan perfectionism view. We are all tempted at some point. And and, and I have in mind here, you know, there may be some teenagers that are struggling with that. But in my estimation, in my experience, the people that struggle with that are people that have retired. You know, they, they've served Christ. They've, they've labored in the church. And, and now they're looking at this season of life where they just want to cruise through. And Paul says, that's not what I'm looking at. It. That, when Paul's approaching the end of his ministry. He says, that, that's, I'm not looking forward to spiritual retirement. He says, I press on. He says, in fact, he says it two times. He presses on, verse 14, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, and then last time we talked about uh, verse 17, he says, Brethren, join in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. He says, continue to follow good godly examples. And then he shares with us really a, a heartbreak where there were some folks that didn't finish well. Some people that the world became attractive. It, it drew them away from Jesus and the gospel. And we talked about them at length last time in verse 19. Their end is destruction. They're not on the path that leads to life. They're not going to go to heaven, Paul says. Well, what has drawn their away, what has drawn their attention away from Jesus? Well, we saw in verse 19, their appetite. And isn't it crazy that there are things as simple as food that can keep you from going to heaven? Isn't that just sobering? There are little, simple attractions and enticements. I mean, you can miss Jesus because you love sports too much. You can't. You can miss Jesus because your job is too much. You can miss Jesus because a relationship is too important to you. And what Paul is warning us here is that there are people that were slowly pulled away by the attractions of the world to where now they've set their mind totally on earthly things. They're not going to heaven. And that that's just not like, a, okay, well, you know, we need to evangelize them now. Paul calls them enemies of the cross. These are people that are living contrary to what the gospel is all about. And the implication is not that they've necessarily outright rejected Jesus. I mean, maybe they did that, but the implication of what Paul seems to be is they're saying, oh yeah, Jesus is important to us. But when you look at their life, they have all these other gods. They're not worshiping Jesus in their life. They may be worshiping him with their lips, but that's not what their life is about. And Paul says that person, the person that professes Jesus but does not follow him is an enemy. Because that, and I don't mean to go on a bunny trail here, but maybe I will. Um, That is the danger of the culture we live in today. 
You know, we may say that, that Mormonism is a threat today because it's growing. We may say that Islam is a threat today because it's growing. We, we may say that, you know, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses that bang on our door and, and, they're, and they're getting out their literature and uh, all those are threats. But, you know, the, the biggest threat today, at least in my estimation, is not the people that are outwardly, you know, just, just in, a, in an overt way saying, we don't believe Christianity is true. We believe Islam is true. I mean, that's a threat. But, but in our culture, the threat is a form of Christianity that professes Jesus with their lips, but denies him in their life. That's the threat. And, and, and that's why I think Paul uses some strong language here. These are enemies of the cross, because if you think you're a Christian because you've prayed a prayer or professed him or you go to church or you talk about Jesus, but you don't live, you end up thinking that you're okay when you're not. That's an enemy. Well, Paul's going to wrap up his time now, not on a bitter note like that, but he says that's not where we live. That's not what we're about. That, that's not what this, this whole situation is. He says our citizenship is heaven. Is there, just, just out of curiosity, is there anybody who is here who is not an American citizen? We're not going to pick on you. I'm just curious. Really? Okay. You know, it's one of those things where, where maybe some of you uh, come from other countries or, or maybe you go to other countries and you understand that what is it like to be in a foreign land when you're a citizen of another country? And I think about this because uh, my mom, uh, uh, I, have a, I have a cousin in the Air Force. He's stationed at Aviano Air Force Base in Italy. And uh, he and his wife just had their first uh, child. And uh, my mom's sister, who's, who's my cousin's mom, I was like, we got to go over and see the baby. And my aunt invited my mom to go to Italy with her to see the baby. Well, that, that was, and they're, they're in L.A., that was the day that that guy shot up a bunch of TSA workers in L.A. That was the morning she was supposed to leave from the airport. So by God's grace, she made it out safely, and my aunt eventually made it out a couple of days later. But, but anyway, um, but my mom, we were talking about this, my mom has never been outside the country. I mean, she, she's rarely been outside of California. And you can imagine somebody like that going and walking around the Vatican and just seeing, oh, all this stuff and this Catholic and, you know, high church and liturgical things and, and then getting to know, you know, trying to fit in with the language and the culture and getting around. They had to take a train all the way down to Rome and, you know, it, well, you can take a train in California, but it's not really safe to do that. But you know what I mean? You have, you have to get used to doing that when you're a citizen of a different country you have to learn how to get along you have to learn how to how to do that and paul's argument here is that remembering our citizenship even though we live in a sense in a foreign land is one of the keys to enduring and not ending up like the people he was just talking about you know we we when we look out we say you know what this world how's that song go mike this world is not my home, right? Right? Let's, I, 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 I almost sing it. Um, this is not where I belong, right? There's, there's a song out right now. It's really popular. We did it in um, the summer study with the kids. I just remember how it went. But all I know is I'm not home yet. This is not where I belong is the chorus of the song. And you know what? That's good theology. You know, praise God, in a modern-day worship song, we have some good theology. That doesn't happen all the time, right? But remembering that keeps you from going crazy 
with all those Black Friday ads. Right? You say, Keith, that, that was below the belt. Yeah, that's where we live. That's where I live. Right? It, it keeps, look back at verse 19. They set their mind on earthly things. It keeps us from getting caught up in that. It keeps us from being caught up in things that are good things, that are nice things. But this is not our home. This is not where we belong, as the song says. And it's very easy to forget that. Let's think about this for a moment. Just unpack this, this for a moment. Um, Terry's talked about this, uh, it's been a couple of months now. First um, John tells us to not love the world. Well, why don't we love the world? Why, why shouldn't we do that? world's got nice stuff. There's nice people. You know, nothing wrong with getting a $50 tablet PC. Nothing wrong with that, right? Why don't we love it? This is the part where you talk. Why don't we love it? Yeah, it's controlled by the devil. This this is the devil's world, isn't it? He's called the god of this world. This is his arena. Sure. Another? Someone in the back? Somebody said something else. I heard you. Yes. Okay, they can't love us back. Okay. It's not eternal. It's not real. And again, you understand, I'm not saying, you know, don't ever go to a Black Friday. You understand, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, when we say we don't belong here, this is not our home, this is not our agenda, those are not our priorities, those are not the most important things in our life. There's many good blessings, and we can praise God for that, and there's nothing unspiritual about enjoying those things. But at the end of the day, we have to say, that's not why we're here. That's not what our life is about. That's not what we value the most. We have an agenda. It's called the gospel. We have one thing, one person that we worship. It's called Jesus. And so we don't love the world because the, the world is, as it says in verse 19, the world can become a false god. It can become a god replacement. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Is that pretty clear? We, we can't say, oh, this is what life is about. Number two, remember Jesus said in John 17, do not be of the world. And I will have you turn here because this is a key text. So turn back to John chapter 17 just because um, this is worth seeing with our eyes as we read it. You've heard the phrase, in the world, but not of the world. And that's very cliche. It's pretty good theology. But what does that actually mean? Well, Jesus is going to explain it here to us in John chapter 11. I'm sorry, John chapter 17, starting at verse 11. Are you there? Just follow along as I read it. You guys know this. This is Jesus, what's called the high priestly prayer. And uh, that's a fancy $100 uh, theological word that basically means that this is this is one of, it uh, probably is, the most magnificent prayer that he prays in Scripture. Uh, and this is leading up to his trial and his death and eventually his resurrection. Chapter 17, verse 11, he says, I am no more in the world, and yet, and meaning he's going to leave, and yet they themselves, talking about believers, are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. Now while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, 
so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Of course, that's a reference to Judas. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, here we go, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Let's just stop right there before we, we move on. What does he mean by that? They don't buy into the world system. Yeah, there, there's a couple of different words that emphasize different aspects of what the world is. You can say, well, you know, we're in the world because we're human beings and this is where human beings live, okay? And, unless you get on a Apollo rocket and you can go around the moon a couple times and come back. I mean, you can do that, but I mean, this is where most of us live. But what Jack is saying is absolutely what Jesus is talking about. Even though we're here, we don't buy into the world system. Let's, let's just unpack that for a little bit. We, we don't, we don't agree with the worldview. And that, and that's what I want you to, in fact, you might even write that down in your notes. It's the worldview that we're talking about here. When he says they're not of the world, what he's saying is we don't buy into their worldview. You say, well, what's a worldview? Well, a worldview is an outlook on life. It's, if you will, a religion. Not like, you know, Buddhism or Hinduism. I mean, those are, but you know, the American way is a worldview. Our culture has a worldview. There are things, let's just think about that for a minute. There are things that we value, right? There are things that we say that's worth spending our money on. There are things that we say that's worth investing some time and energy in. There are things that say that is a noble pursuit. There, there are all sorts of things that are in the world. You, know, you can be a, a student, you can... You can uh, work, you, you know, and all those things are, are part of a worldview, a way of looking at life. And, and again, it's not like all those things are incompatible with what the Bible says. But what Jesus is saying here is that if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you, you have said, I am turning away from the value system, from the worldview of the culture that I live in, and I am replacing it with a biblical worldview that explains what life is about. Does that make sense? So yes, it's, it's the values, it's the priorities, it, it's, it's the things we do and say, it's what drives what we do and why we do it. Um, it was a very sad night last night. Um, I watched the USC-UCLA game. And for those of you that know me, um, that was, uh, I hurt. It was it was a sorry game, and um, I was a Trojan for one semester. Um, and you watch in the interviews, you watch what was in like the first three minutes. Any of you guys watch the game? Well, good. You're more spiritual than I am. That's good. Um, oh, you're watching the A and M. Okay, all right. Yeah, I'm. See, I'm. I just. I'm showing you. I'm not of this world, right? I'm, okay. Um, yeah. Um, Within a couple of minutes, they ejected a guy because he took a punch at somebody. Why is that? A rivalry. Why is there a rivalry? Because for years and years and years and years, USC and UCLA are not friends. Why? I don't know. It's a football game. 
And you look at the money, you look at the time, you look at the emotion, you look at the energy. And you know, I like watching football. I do. That's cool. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but look, it's, it's their world. There are people, there are Trojans all across the world that are waking up this morning depressed because they lost to the Bruins again. Right? We're not of the world. Thirdly, we don't store up worldly treasure. And you guys know this verse. We talked about it last week. You don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but you store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. See, our citizenship is in heaven, which means what? We, we don't love the world. We love the world we belong to. We, we, don't, we don't buy into the system of this world. We buy into the system of Christianity, of the biblical worldview. We, we, we're not all about storing up the world's stuff. We, you know, you know what we do? We, we are crazy. We are crazy. Because we invest in things you can't see. We invest in things that people say that's not worth it. We, we send money to people all across the world in hard places doing hard things. Why? Because the gospel is precious. Because Jesus is the only solution. And that's what we do. And that doesn't make any sense to somebody that buys into the worldview of the culture. But that's what we do. So remembering, if you want to find your way back to Philippians now, remembering that we are not of this world, that our citizenship is in heaven, where we belong. Our, our And you, you can almost relate this to what I was talking about in my sermon last week. What's our identity? What is it? Paul said it in Galatians 2, for to me, or, or back in uh, Philippians chapter 2, for to me to live is Christ. That's it. Life is Jesus. Who am I? I'm in Christ. I'm a Christian. He, he's my identity. And so what do we do? If, if that's our citizenship, we wait for Jesus. And I hope you understand that, 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 um, Jesus is going to come and judge the world. He's going to come and judge the world. He will set up his kingdom. He will have his way. But this world is going to get worse and worse and worse until he does. So what do we do? We wait for him. We wait. And, and you know, waiting, this is not spiritual waiting. Yeah, that, that, that's not spiritual waiting. We don't just sit around, twiddle our thumbs, watch a little football till he comes. No, the, the idea is we're, we're waiting for Jesus because when he comes, our opportunity is done. Right? When our, our opportunity for gospel ministry is done at that point. So, so we wait for him. But look at the direction that he goes with this. What are we waiting for him to do? He will transform our body to conform to his. Verse 21 says, Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject himself to all things. He comes back to his previous discussion, doesn't he? Remember he says, Not that I have obtained it, 
nor have I become perfect, but I press on, right? I, I pursue Christ. I grow in my spiritual walk. I seek to mature and grow as Jesus works in me, and I press on, and I press on, and I press on, waiting for Jesus to come, and when he comes, he will complete the work that he started. He will do what we can't do in this life. Now, I want to back up for a second and remind yourself, remind, remind yourself of a couple of things here. Remember we talked about there, there are three aspects to salvation. And, and let me just remind you of these. We, we've talked about these before in Sunday school, but, but now we're getting to the last one, okay? Three aspects. There's what we call conversion. And, and what's conversion? What is that? All my pens are like not very bright today, so let me try that one. What's conversion? Yeah, it's justification. It's when, it's when I recognize I'm a sinner, that I need a savior, that my, my destiny, my, my, the road that I'm on is hell and judgment, and unless, unless God saves me, I'm hopeless. And like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, to be found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that comes from Him on the basis of faith. When a person turns from sin, trusts in Jesus, and that wonderful transaction occurs where Jesus takes their sin away, pays for it, and then He deposits to their account His perfect righteousness so that that person is justified declared not guilty but righteous because of Jesus' work. That's conversion. And, you know, when we when we talk about salvation... Oh, that's better, isn't it? You see that? Okay. When we talk about salvation, that's usually what we're talking about. Okay? But if you're a Christian, that's a past fact. That that's It's done. It's ancient history, and, and it will not be changed. But what about this? There's the present aspect of salvation that we call sanctification. And sanctification is a progressive work where the believer grows and matures to be more like Jesus in his actual practice, right? We've talked about that before. And that's where we live. If you're a Christian, that's where you live. Your conversion is done. You've been justified. You're part of God's family. There's nothing, as Romans 8 says, that can separate you from the love of Christ. It doesn't matter if you're struggling with sin today or if you're having a good day. It doesn't matter if you're growing in Christ's likeness or if you feel like you're really being tempted right now. Your salvation in terms of your conversion is complete. And it is secured by the God that saved you. So what do we do in the meantime? We grow progressively. God works in us to make us more like Jesus every day in our life in a practical way. And that's what Paul was talking about when he says, I've not obtained it, I've not become perfect. He says, I'm pressing on, I'm still growing. And then there's this last part of it. What's the last one called? Do you remember what it's called? Glorification, sure. And that is what we're talking about here. Because when Jesus comes, he will take Christians and he will transform their body to conform perfectly to his. Now, there's a whole bunch of verses here that we could look at, um, and, and we'll look at those in just a second, okay? But how's he going to do that? I mean, I, I just, just think about this. Um, those sins that you struggle with, those things you've been fighting since you were a kid, 
the things you battle every day, you say, I love Jesus, so why don't I, why do I keep doing this? Right? You with me? He's going to change that. There'll be a day when that fight is over. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power when, when Jesus said, let there be light, and light suddenly came into existence. He creates the universe in six days. The, the same power that says, Lazarus, come forth. The same power that says to the sea, hush, be still, and the storm stops. That same power, he will say to you, be perfect. Be just like Jesus. And instantly, in a moment, every ounce of remaining sin in you will be gone. And we will go back. Actually, it's better than, than going back to, to the original creation. I'll tell you why in a minute. But, but if you could imagine, instead of being a broken mirror of Jesus' character, now we're a perfect mirror. That we behold Jesus and we perfectly reflect His glory. That's the picture of Scripture. That you will love perfectly like Jesus loves. You will be kind perfectly like Jesus is kind. You won't have any sinful thoughts. You won't have any sinful desires. Sin, you know, I was reading in the Psalms, um, I forget the reference, but there's a Psalm that says, God has no pleasure in sin. Now think about that. God has no pleasure in sin. There's nothing about sin that is attractive to Him, that is interesting to Him, that is enticing to Him. Can you imagine what that must be like? Can you imagine that sin is not attractive to you in any way? There's no draw, there's no pleasure, there's no urge, there's no desire. It's just done. And the only thing that we love, the only thing that is attractive to us, the only thing that we long for is righteousness. That'll be a good day, won't it? So let's talk a little bit more about, in the time we have left here, about what glorification will be like. This is called glorification. And, you know, we don't talk about glorification so much, but I want you to see Paul concludes his discussion of growing in Christ with remembering the goal. I mean, okay, think, think about this. Let's say you're running, okay, and you're running, and um, you have no idea how long you have to run. Now, how's that going to go? That's pretty discouraging, isn't it? Paul's saying there's a finish line coming. There's an end to this race. He doesn't give us the exact distance, but he tells us it's finite. It's coming. It's not indefinite. And that battle will be over. Glorification, first of all, is certain. I'm, I'm just gonna, can I take you uh, around the Bible for just a couple of minutes here? Look at Romans chapter 8. How do we know that glorification is certain? We'll talk about this a little bit in the next hour. I'm going to talk about, uh, in, in, in my sermon today, I'm going to talk about temptation, something that none of us deal with. And you might be struggling with sin today. You, you might be. You probably are. If you have a pulse, you will be, if you're not already. And one of the dangers of struggling with sin is that we begin to question whether any of this is true. Don't we do that? How do we know 
that God is going to complete the work that he started? How do we know that this is coming? How do we know that it's certain? Maybe, maybe I'm struggling so much and that's going to disqualify me from this in some way. Well, if that's you, listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to come before, I'm sorry, to become conformed to the image of his son. Now let's just stop right there. What does predestined mean? I know in some churches predestination is is a four-letter word. and I, I, I want to, if that's where you're at, I want to show you that predestination is a gloriously comforting word because that's what it's meant to be. What does predestined mean? Future is guaranteed. A point marked out. God decided beforehand that this was what was going to happen. He didn't ask you about it. He didn't ask me about it. He said, this is the way it's going to be. And what did he, what did he decide? What did he predestine? He predestined that believers, his children, people that are trusting in his son, will be conformed to the image of his son. Now, now, now look at the language there. What he's saying is, talking to believers, this, this is, well, he's going to talk about that in a minute. But he's saying, if you're a Christian, God has decided beforehand, and he's not going to change his mind, that you're going to grow. You're going to grow. Um, to be more like Jesus, and that that growth, whatever level you attain to in this life, will be completed in your glorification. Everybody crosses the finish line. Everybody looks like Jesus. So whatever your struggle, whatever your trial, whatever is going on, I want you to see in black and white right here that God has settled something in heaven, and that is he will complete the work that he started. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And now he's going to explain how does God play that out, right? How does he play that out in your life? Well, here's how it happens. It says, well, those whom he predestined, these he called, right? That's what he does right prior to conversion. And those whom he called, he also justified. You can think of that as the same as conversion, and those whom he justified, these he also glorified. He skips sanctification because that's what he was talking about in verse 29. It's, it's, it's there. He's already talked about it. Now, what do you say to that? If you've been known beforehand, and if you're a Christian, you are, you've been predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And the way that get, gets played out is God calls you, He justifies you, he sanctifies you, he glorifies you. Theologians call this the golden chain because it can't be broken. You notice, just look back at the text. Are there any off-ramps to that? Anybody have footnotes in your Bible? Unless this happens and then you derail, right? Is that what it says? Anybody have anything like that? Because it's a done deal. And look at 31. What then shall we say to these things if that's the way it is? If that's what God has determined, if God is for us, say it, who's against us? 
You can't lose. You can't. So this glorification is certain. Colossians talks about that. 1 Peter talks about that. Secondly, glorification brings the completion of sanctification. It brings the completion of sanctification. There's a bunch of places we can go. Let's look over at uh, 2 Thessalonians as just a cross-reference here. We already read this in um, in Philippians, because what does Philippians say? He, he's going to transform your body into exact conformity to the body of his son, right? That, that's, that means your sanctification is complete. Where's 2 Thessalonians? There it is. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. I'm sorry, verses 13 and 14. And, and this is kind of at a transition in the book, but just listen listen to how he presents this as a done deal. Verse 13, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith and truth, And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. Do you see him tie sanctification and glory together? You were called for glory to gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the completion of sanctification. It's it's the time when, you know, if, if this is, remember, if this is the chart, and, and here's you, and you're you're growing in your walk with God, good days and bad days, right? And then Jesus comes, or you die. Here's Jesus up here. Here's perfect sinlessness. Here's perfect righteousness. And you die at that po- at that point, or Jesus comes back, and you get translated to perfectly reflect His glory. You get translated to be perfectly li- righteous in your practice, even as you already are in your position. So glorification is the completion of sanctification. Thirdly, it involves the transformation of the body. And we can't have any discussion about glorification without looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So let's turn there. This will probably be the last place we go today. 1 Corinthians 15. This text, as you turn there, is all about the gospel. In fact, right out of the gate in chapter 1, Paul says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. And then he explains what the gospel is. He talks about conversion. He talks about regeneration. And then he gets to this little point here. It's a very long chapter, actually. And he talks about this last aspect of salvation, what we call glorification. Um, And what raises the discussion is he's talking about the resurrection of the dead. And you guys know there were some people running around the church that didn't think the resurrection happened. There were some other people that thought it had already happened. And so Paul's trying to just address that concept. And he says in verse 42, talking about the body of the believer when it dies, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It, meaning the body, is sown a perishable body, but it is raised an imperishable body. So, so let me put this in context. Anybody been to a funeral lately? Okay. What happens in a funeral? They, they take the person's body and, and sometimes they cremate it or, or typically they'll put it in a box and they'll put it in the ground and that body is perishable, right? By definition, it is perishable. It's not immortal. 
that that body in the box decays and, and, and the, the um, molecules that make up the body, the elements of that uh, go through a transitionary process. And just like uh, the Bible says in Genesis 3, man's body returns to the dust, right? That's, that's, that's the way it's been since Genesis 3. See, that is the way our bodies are sown. That's the way they die. But one day when we are glorified, when either Jesus comes, uh, when, when Jesus comes back either uh, through the rapture or if you die, then at the point where the rapture happens for you, even if you're dead, your body will be raised. A, a new resurrection body is what Paul has in mind here. It dies, it is buried as a perishable body, but when Jesus comes and he raises it from the dead, it is raised an imperishable body. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, right? It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. I mean, when someone dies, we say, death wins. At least that's what it looks like. But for a Christian, that is not the end, right? That's, that's not the end. Why? Because one day Jesus will say, raise up. And that body will be transformed into something like the resurrection body of Jesus. I don't know if it's exactly the same or not. But it will be raised a new, imperishable body. So it is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Verse 51, skip down there. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, talking about 1 Thessalonians 4 with the rapture of the church, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. So what do we say? When this imperishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then we will come about... Then it will come about the saying that is written. Here it is. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, but the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That will be an amazing day. And don't forget what Romans 8 says. If you're a Christian, it's guaranteed. You can't lose it. You can't fall from it. There's nothing you can do to lose your salvation. So what do we do? Don't close your Bible yet. What do we do? Because we stand amazed. We stand encouraged. We should be. We should be amazed. We should be encouraged. I mean, can you picture that? Christians with glorified bodies going with Jesus to heaven. I mean, can you picture that? So what do we do? Remember what Philippians said? We wait eagerly for Jesus. What is this designed to do? What is the motivation for this? What, what, is, what does all this conclude? It comes when Christ appears. thought there was one more. Okay. Look at verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. If this is true, if this is our destiny, if this is what's going to happen... He comes full circle. 
Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. This is worth fighting for. This message is worth dying for. This is worth turning away from everything to follow this Savior. Because this is how it ends for those that belong to Him. So with that encouragement, let's press on. Let's be encouraged and know that our toil in Jesus is not in vain when we live for the gospel and for His kingdom. Let's pray.